The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you now to turn with me in your Bible to Jonah chapter 2. I once heard a sermon on the book of Jonah that was divided into three parts. First, Jonah runs from God. Then Jonah runs to God. And thirdly, Jonah runs for God. And that's a nice way to divide up the text and uh, a nice and tidy way to describe how God takes this fleeing prophet and transforms him to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. However, that is really only true if we just consider the first three chapters. And if we don't pay attention to the disturbing message that comes in chapter 4 that we'll see in a few weeks, where Jonah grows to resent the amazing work that God does through him to the Ninevite people. We come tonight to find Jonah's repentance, and it is a genuine repentance as we find him praying from the belly of the great fish. But we also will see in coming weeks that Jonah's repentance is not complete. It is not perfect yet. Though it is real, it is still in process. And so we want to learn tonight from the prophet something about the nature of repentance. And how by prayer we can appropriate the grace of God to grow on to the perfection that God wills for us as we follow Christ Jesus our Lord. Please follow as I read Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us pray. Father, once again, we would ask that the meditations, that that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
Amen. People who suffer claustrophobia fear being trapped in confining spaces. They want their freedom to be able to go as they please and breathe the fresh air. The very thought of being trapped inside a crashed car, a collapsed house or a building, or even stuck on an elevator is terrifying. People want their freedom. And even to uh, someone who suffers claustrophobia would never even think to go into work as a minor. As we've seen in recent months, the Peruvian miners who were captured and, and stuck underground for weeks on end before being heroically rescued. The very thought would frighten many of us. Well, not all of us are necessarily afraid of being trapped in confining spaces. But I believe in our natural condition, we have a fear and suffer something we might call spiritual claustrophobia. The very thought of God controlling us is very frightening. We want freedom from God's rule and his ways. Well, it would seem that Jonah was suffering such an episode in this portion of his life. Last week, we looked at the prophet on the run, seeking to flee as far west as a ship would take him. Jonah was afraid. He feared ministry failure. He was indeed afraid of the Ninevites. They were a horrific People. He, Jonah, the prophet, feared what other people would think of him by going to preach to these pagans. He had a reputation to maintain. Jonah also feared ministry success. For God, even sending Jonah on such a mission, indicated the very possibility that the God might relent from bringing his wrath on these people if they should turn and repent. Jonah, being a very zealous nationalist, hated the Ninevites. He didn't want them to be saved. He wanted them dead. Jonah felt claustrophobic, and so he ran I understand from various reports that certain phobias can be cured by by gradually exposing and enabling the victim to face his or her fears until they are overcome. Well, God has a way of curing people of spiritual claustrophobia. Sometimes it's gradual. Sometimes it's not so gradual, but rather a crash course. And for many, of us, for many of us, that's what we need. Like Jonah. Like Job. Like Isaiah. A bold encounter with the living God to shake us up into spiritual reality. God takes the initiative with his people to enable them to repent. To turn away from sin and self and to renew fellowship in his presence. Tonight, we want to consider repentance in three parts. Repentance as seeking the Lord with a penitent heart. Seeking the Lord with a prayerful heart. 
and seeking restored presence with the Lord. Well, last week we left Jonah in the belly of a great fish. Pastor Light did not resolve for us what kind of animal this was, nor can I. However, I couldn't help but do some research to see what scholars were saying about this, and it seems that many of them do not believe this was actually a whale. Apparently, most whales have a very restricted diameter in their esophagus. that would make it very hard to fit a whole man down the throat and into the belly. And so it's common to suggest that this might have been a great white shark. In fact, there's, there's a great old story about a sailor falling off of the ship into turbulent seas, being devoured by a great white. And a quick-acting captain ordered the firing of a harpoon into the shark, which promptly vomited the sailor back out and was saved alive. Another story reports of a great white being found dead on the seashore. Dissecting it, pulled out a whole horse from the belly of this gigantic animal. I even saw one guess out there that perhaps this was a basking shark, which apparently is not a man-eater, but is much larger than a great white, as scary as that may sound. Suffice it to say that God is not limited by what we know of marine biology. Nor is he limited by confining tight spaces. Beyond the miracle of Jonah getting past teeth and restrictions to the throat, entryway into the esophagus, it's a miracle enough that the Lord spared his life and kept him alive for three days. His air supply, protection from the digestive heat of the animal, dehydration, saving his mind from the madness of claustrophobia. But once again, we should say that the fish is not the point of this story, despite what many children's renditions would emphasize. In fact, the greatest miracle of the story is not even Jonah's physical preservation, but rather his spiritual restoration. Even greater than God's act with the fish is the mighty work of God in this estranged prophet's heart. We come to Jonah in the belly of the great fish as he prays. It's very apparent from this prayer that Jonah is quite humbled by his circumstances. In his prayer, he acknowledges his great distress. He is overwhelmed. He is clearly not in control of his situation. In his helplessness, he calls upon the Lord out of great desperation. God answers Jonah, and this humbles him. He had sunk to the great depths spiritually and morally, and yet the Lord still listened to his cry. Jonah acknowledges that he's not even deserving of this merciful fish. He clearly thought that he was going to die. He probably wanted to die, as miserable as he was, separated from the Lord. Jonah had dishonored his God. Jonah, as we saw last week, had been shown up 
by the compassionate acts of these pagan sailors who struggled mightily with all their strength to spare his life, to get back to shore before they gave up and resigned to the fact that they needed to obey and cast him into the seas. These heathens proved more pious than the famed prophet of the Lord. They forsook their idols. They made pledges of sacrifices to this great God. God used unbelievers who turned from sin and idolatry to glorify God in spite of Jonah to help wake up this man of God, to turn back to the Lord in repentance. Jonah is even humbled by this great fish, which is more obedient to its maker than he is. One has to wonder which was more defiled, the fish or the prophet, by contact with one another. We also see in this text that Jonah is broken with a penitent heart. He acknowledges that the Lord has sent this trial upon him in response to his sin and rebellion. He recounts the terrifying experience of being hurled into the great deep with waves and billows crashing over him in the midst of a horrific storm. Jonah expresses his brokenness over being banished from the Lord's sight in verse 4. This word for banishment means to drive out. It's the same word used to describe the Lord driving out Adam and Eve from the garden. The consequence of our sin is losing the Lord's presence. Our sin and rebellion has cost us fellowship with the living God. And so Jonah now experiences the misery of being separated from the Lord. And yet the Lord who is merciful to pursue his people sends into our lives engulfing waters, threatening trials to stir up a hard heart to repentance and spiritual health once again. Joni Erickson Tata has these words to say, When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues you have been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to to continue trying to live in two worlds, obeying Christ or my own sinful desires? Or am I going to refuse to worry Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short, am I going to be like Christ? He provides the suffering, but the choice is yours. We need people like Joni Erickson Tata to remind us that God is always with us in the midst of the storm. Trials do not come by chance. They come from the hand of a great and loving God who does have a purpose for us in the trials. Now, we're also reminded from Scripture that not every trial is necessarily a consequence of our sin. And yet, every trial is an opportunity to reckon with our sin and to seek the Lord's presence. And as we find here in the example of Jonah, 
that the best way to make good on a repentance is to seek the Lord with a prayerful heart. Jonah does provide us a model prayer, especially when you're stuck in an undesirable place. In such a fix, we are forced to contend with ourselves, deal with our shame, and be confronted with the glory and the majesty of God. We see Jonah in his prayer. He is faithful and expectant. You know, Jonah could have given up hope. Jonah could have given himself up for dead. He could have been paralyzed in fear, in self-pity. Like Job's wife, he could have cursed God and died. But he did not. Realizing that he was still alive in the body of this great animal, he expresses a will to live and to seek the Lord's face. He prays for deliverance. Twice he calls out to the Lord for help. And notice that he trusts, he believes that his cries will not fall on deaf ears. Though his life is ebbing away, he remembers the Lord. And as his prayer rises up, even as his body descends deeper and deeper into the depths. Another indicator of his faithfulness in prayer is the fact that his prayer echoes Scripture. Even his opening line, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me, matches the very words of David in Psalm 18, verse 6. Jonah seems to identify with the words of Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice, my pleas for mercy. If it is indeed the case that Jonah graduated from the school of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, then he would have been trained in the scriptures. He would have had much of God's word committed to memory. Jonah here provides encouragement to parents, to volunteers with our children and our youth, to train up our young people in the scriptures. It reminds us of the importance of using quality and memorable hymns in an effort to plant the precious truths of God into impressionable young minds. For the day will come when they will be tempted to wander. They will find themselves in the midst of great trials, having gone astray from the Lord. And we want their minds and hearts to be haunted, to hear the echo of Scripture and God's truth coming for to the tips of their tongues, they may cry out to him in their distress. Well, having been trained up in the Scriptures, Jonah is also expectant in prayer. In verse 4, although he mourns and laments his banishment from the Lord's sight, he is yet hopeful that he will once again look again towards the holy temple. That's quite a statement of faith for a man trapped in the body of a fish in the great Mediterranean Sea. In verse 6, he acknowledges that the Lord has brought his life up from the pit. He describes his experience of being barred like behind, behind prison bars beneath the earth. Jonah tastes an experience an experience of what the destiny will be like for those who are slaves to sin. 
I believe that this trial enables Jonah to empathize with those who are graceless. For those whose destiny is, is, law, is to be lost, to be punished under the eternal wrath of Almighty God without his saving grace. He ascribes his experience in the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead. He was as close to death as a man can get without hope of surviving. And yet from that great depth, Jonah is brought back to return to the Lord, to serve the message of God's salvation would reach the ears of those who are perishing without the knowledge of a Savior. Jonah illustrates for us several prominent themes of Scripture. The way down is the way up. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jonah is exhibit A for the biblical teaching that a man is not prepared to show another his sin, nor his need for grace, until the preacher has seen his own sin and his own desperate need for a gracious Savior. Jonah was proud. He was self-righteous. He was judgmental and hateful. He wanted nothing to do with God's mission to the heathens. He refused God's call in his life to preach the message of grace to others. And once again, the miracle here is not the fish. The miracle here is the heart of a man being turned away from deep self-centeredness, uprooting pride and self-righteousness, and making a man willing and able to preach grace to the lost and the needy. What drives Jonah's renewed sense of mission, in many ways, is his deep sense of loss of the only thing worth living for, the presence of God. I want you to notice how his prayer is consumed with seeking the presence of the Lord. Twice, in verse 4 and in verse 7, he expresses this one great hope, this longing to return to the temple of the Lord. Now, you need to understand that in the Old Testament... For the ancient people of God, the temple at Jerusalem was the visible manifestation of the living God on earth. It was a central focus point for worship. It was the very dwelling place of the Almighty whose throne was above the cherubim and whose footstool was the very Ark of the Covenant itself. And so with a renewed sense of thanksgiving, Jonah pledges once again to make sacrifice, to pay good on a vow he had previously taken. Jonah has a restored sense of delight in worship. I believe it's only when we are worshiping God that we are truly sane, that we are truly delivered from the insanity of our own sin and idolatry. Such was the case of Asaph, who upon meditating upon the Lord and the temple in Psalm 73, repents of his self-pity when he realizes that the wicked face God's judgment and his eternal wrath. 
And it is the same recognition, meditating upon the Lord and his temple, that moves the heart of Jonah to, to pity those who are enslaved to idolatry. Look at verse 8. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit grace that could be theirs. You see, the problem for ancient Israel, the problem very evident amongst the leaders of the Jews in Jesus' own day, was a proud, self-righteous indignation towards the pagans. The Israelites were proud of the fact that they did not worship an image. There was no image of the Lord in the temple. They held the pagans in contempt for worshiping false gods. But here, Jonah the prophet is recognizing his idol. The idol of his nation's freedom. The idol of his nation's superiority under Jeroboam II who enjoyed great prosperity in Jonah's day before Assyria would sack it within a generation. Jonah is humbled by his own idolatry and is moved with compassion upon those who are ignorant of God's hesed, his steadfast love, his grace and mercy for those who will trust in him. And so we see in the final words of this prayer, a new and profound appreciation for this very fact. Salvation comes from the Lord. And so with this recognition, the Lord commands the fish to vomit Jonah back upon dry land to send him off on his mission. Jonah was called to preach grace to the greatest city of the world, and yet he did not understand that grace for himself at first. He came to recognize through this dreadful experience that salvation was by grace alone, and it was for everyone. In his own pride, he insisted that the Ninevites didn't deserve grace. Well, no, they didn't deserve grace, but that's the whole point. Grace can't be deserved. It's nobody's entitlement, and it is for Everybody. Only once experiencing this grace is Jonah fit to preach it, to make it available to others. And it's this very truth. The message of grace is for us what sets Christianity apart from every world religion. And it's this message that empowers you and I to proclaim the gospel of God to those who are blind and hardened, and stuck in idolatrous worship. You know, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple at Jerusalem, a good century and a half after this encounter with Jonah, the people of Israel mourned greatly, for it meant that God's presence was gone forever from Israel. Many of them had been deluded thinking that Jerusalem was unconquerable. They misunderstood the designs of God's judgment and redemption. The temple was never intended to be the permanent dwelling place of God. The temple merely pointed ahead to the one who would be the fullness of the dwelling 
of God. Jesus confronted his enemies. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. His disciples assumed all was lost when he was crucified. He was gone from their presence. And yet, three days later, they were thunderstruck, realizing that all this time, God in the flesh had been in their midst. They now had the promise of the Spirit, the very presence of the Lord and power to witness his grace to the ends of the earth. Jonah is a missional book. It expresses God's heart for the lost. And as Jonah's cry points towards the true temple, Jonah's life points forward to the Lord Jesus. The true Jonah. The one who was sent on a desperate mission to the lost. Jonah was a reluctant prophet. Jesus was a very willing and eager prophet. Jonah did not suffer at the hands of his hearers. Jesus was crucified. Yet he brought the message of salvation and enabled that very salvation by his life and his death. Jonah was a backslidden prophet. And yet, in our text tonight, we see that he repented. In weeks to come, we will see that Jonah slips back. He turns back from his repentant state until God has to confront him again with a very personal and pointed charge, a bold confrontation of the very gracious message of his unfailing love for sinners. Jonah's life teaches us that The message of grace does not come without great sacrifice. And our repentance may be slow in coming. But God's mission to the lost never comes unless it's through broken, repentant messengers who have been humbled and empowered by the greatest act of self-denial, humiliation, and exaltation the world has ever seen. Perhaps one of my favorite movies is the film Braveheart, Academy Award-winning film from 15 years ago, and I acknowledge from the get-go it's not exactly historically accurate. But the story is well-written and communicates some powerful Christian themes. In that film, the Robert the Bruce character is mesmerized by the courageous and charismatic William Wallace. William Wallace of Scotland inspires the commoners to follow him in overthrowing Edward the Longshanks, king of England. Robert the Bruce wants to follow Wallace. He wants to believe like Wallace. He wants to lead like Wallace. He's tired of being bought off, trading away the freedom of his people for security, wealth, and comfort from London. And so for a while, he supports the Scottish Revolution. But then he slumps back into self-protecting ways, tantalized by the prospect of gaining the throne of Scotland for himself if he would only placate the English. Well, in an act of cowardice, Robert the Bruce protects the king, 
Edward in disguise and has to confront William Wallace in battle. And in the scuffle, the real true identity of Robert the Bruce is revealed. William Wallace is shocked to the core to see that he has been betrayed by whom he thought a loyal friend. That very encounter changed Robert the Bruce's life. And years later, after William Wallace's death, it will be Robert who completely repents and leads his Scottish followers into revolt against England. Now, not necessarily historically accurate, but in the way the story is told to communicate something very biblical. We find in the Robert the Bruce character a man who wavers between self-serving allegiance to King Edward versus self-sacrificing allegiance to the good of his own people. It will require the great and dreadful sacrifice of William Wallace, who in his death cry for freedom, knocks Robert off of his seesaw of wavering. Like him, we too waver in our allegiance to ourself and to our Lord until the very message of grace cuts us to the core It requires for us the sacrificial death of our dear Lord and Savior to give us the power and the freedom to repent. Not a perfect repentance, but in a way that appropriates the grace of God to be made whole again. You and I, like Jonah, half-hearted, idol-ridden believers, are learning by grace what it means to be enabled to repent, to seek the Lord's presence, to grow on to perfection when it would be before our great God and King, to honor him, to worship him, to serve him forever and ever. May he indeed have all the glory in our lives from here and forevermore. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the greatness of your mercy, the splendor of your grace that is always sufficient for us in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, we pray that we might appropriate that grace to be a repentant and prayerful people who abide in Christ, the only Savior of sinners, to take his message to those who are lost, needy, and hurting. Oh, Father, fill us, renew us, strengthen us, and guide us. We do ask in Jesus' name. Amen.